This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Missions community show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. You're listening to Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Our acknowledgement of country tonight comes from John Grimes at a summit of all the state energy ministers. I'd like to just kick off by acknowledging the Aboriginal owners of the land, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. And I note with an event like this, with, a, with an audience of about a thousand people joining us, uh, we will have people from literally every corner of Australia. And there are over 500 Aboriginal nations, a very complex, diverse network of traditional owners that, that inhabited the whole of the continent uh, and uh, obviously Tasmania. And, uh, and I pay my respect to their elders, past and present, and, and to those young people emerging in those communities. Let's do everything we can to, to put some wind under their wings to help them to fly, to really uh, take uh, Indigenous Australia forward. Beyond Zero Emissions is a think tank researching climate solutions all around Australia. We are urging the COVID recovery to speed up a million jobs in a transition that's already happening away from a high-carbon emissions economy. I must admit, listeners, I am like the man in Stevie Smith's poem, not waving, but drowning. Hours of editing, tons to report on, but this week I just couldn't face another interview. So I've decided to showcase a podcast from the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. It's about the bushfires at Kangaroo Island and it's called Glowing Island. The voices you will hear are from Kangaroo Island, Kate Welts, Sabrina Davis and Peter Davis, Jane Bates and Dana Mitchell. The host is Sarah Mashman. It was still 43 degrees out the west end of the island with winds that were very strong, lots of fuel and we had massive firestorms. The world just changed for Kangaroo Island. I didn't go to the farm for the first few days because my husband asked me not to. He didn't think I would be mentally strong enough at that stage to see the devastation and I'm glad I didn't. I don't think anyone was prepared for how horrific it was going to be. Definitely is um, not anything that's going to leave anyone's minds anytime soon. It was, yeah, really, really heartbreaking to see. This episode contains stories of animals in distress. This is From the Embers, sharing the voices of people and communities impacted by Australia's devastating summer of 2019. I'm Sarah Mashman. Kangaroo Island is a wild and windswept landscape, and there are two ways to get there from the mainland. Catching the ferry from Cape Jervis, a one and a half hour drive south of Adelaide, or by plane. 
We're surrounded by big, beautiful she-oaks and lovely corias and acacias. And we have lots of resident wallabies and kangaroos and goannas and echidnas around that come and visit us daily. And we're just about a five-minute walk to the beach. So on certain evenings when it's really still, we can hear the waves crashing. I'm Kate Wells, and I live in Sapphire Town, which is sort of the end of Island Beach on Kangaroo Island. So I moved here when I was a very young backpacker from America, and I've been here about 26 years. I love the beautiful beaches and the space, all the animals. It's just really pretty, and it's untouched. Sabrina Davis is from Germany. More than a decade ago, she decided to backpack around the world and... See this faraway country that I never really heard much about and ended up here as a woofer. And it's a willing worker on organic farms and ended up falling in love with the Kangaroo Island man and, yeah, I'm still here. (laughs) They can sense whether you're uh, loving them or whether you're just being rough and... So if you're gentle, bees just carry on doing what they are. Peter Davis has lived on Kangaroo Island all his life. My parents had bees as long ago as I can remember. When I left school, I took over the 12 hives that we had on the farm. Peter looks after what are called Ligurian bees that were brought to Kangaroo Island from northern Italy. The Government of South Australia passed legislation to make Kangaroo Island a sanctuary for them in 1885. So we are now the oldest bee sanctuary in the world, the place where you'll find the purest Ligurian bees in the world. Peter had over a thousand hives spread across the island, from which 100 tonnes of honey were extracted each year. His business is based in Kingscote, on the island's east side. Bees are a very special industrious insect that is very organised and once you get hooked on bees, you become very hooked and passionate. They just produce from what is growing at the moment. You can taste how wonderful, beautiful Kangaroo Island is. You can taste it in the honey. The Kangaroo Island man that Sabrina fell in love with is Peter's youngest son, Ben. I thought it was fate that I met him because my German childhood nickname literally translates to bee in English. And so I thought I was meant to meet a beekeeper one day. (laughs) When I came here, I worked for my now brother-in-law and learned a lot in the time and realised how clever these little creatures are and how much they are like me as well because they like a good solid 25 degrees. They don't like rain. They don't like wind. (laughs) January is the windiest time on Kangaroo Island. The island is not only known for the wildness of its creatures, but for the unpredictability of its elements. We understand the power of nature. We understand the importance of nature. That's Jane Bates. She was the island's mayor for eight years. She and her family are all members of the Country Fire Service, the CFS. We're a native vegetation landscape. We have lots of fires. 56% of our fires start with lightning. The fires actually started here on about the 20th of December and uh, we had a couple of lightning strikes out on the north coast. 
When lightning hit the Duncan area on the north coast, Kate was working at the nearby wildlife park. It was about 44 degrees. A big storm cloud came over. It rained torrentially for about 10 minutes, so much so that the park actually flooded because it had been quite dry before that. And then as soon as it stopped, we could all smell smoke. And so in that moment, not that far from the wildlife park, a lightning strike had lit up the scrub. All of us were thinking, what's going to happen next? We had to actually be inside, not just because of the rain, but because the lightning was so close. The area around Duncan burned for two weeks. The wildlife park was spared, but the fire consumed homes, farmland and livestock. Peter and his two sons were at the fire grounds. We spent days fighting those fires and we had them pretty much under control. And then on the 29th of December, there were two more lightning strikes out in Flinders Chase. When it broke from Flinders Chase, that movement, we've never seen it before. It's something we have never experienced ever as a community. Normally about four or five o'clock in the afternoon, you get the temperature dropping, the dew coming in, and their fires will calm down. And also if there's a southwesterly change coming, we go ripper. The southwesterly is usually what brings a cool change. But this time was different. Both those runs, both those big, devastating, uncontrollable firestorms happened on southwesterlies. Which meant when the wind changed southwest, it was still incredibly hot. It was still 43 degrees out the west end of the island with winds that were very strong, lots of fuel, and we had massive firestorms. The world just changed for Kangaroo Island. For a while there, I did the radio, so one radio to the whole fire ground. Jane was working around the clock in Incident Management Team Operations, or IMT. The operations is a lockdown room where all the radio communications come in, everything goes out to the fire ground, so it's privileged but demanding. The IMT was in Kingscote. I took toothbrush and a change of Vundies because I thought I'm probably not going to get home tonight. We had all the triple O calls coming to one pager in the room, so those had to be listened to, logged. We had to grid them, find out where they were, pass it onto the fire ground with accuracy. You know, apart from the messages they're coming back in, they might need extra resources, they might need planes, they might need helicopters, they might need extra people. But there was people that were doing that day in and night, of course, for the whole period. And living in a small community, there's always a chance there'll be someone you know on the other end of that triple zero call or in one of the fire trucks. And there was one night where, after the fire ran the second time, operations spent till very late in the evening trying to get every fire truck a safe route home. And we had an emergency call come in to someone who was in a very difficult predicament, a local whose car had broken down. So we decided the only thing we could do was turn one truck back to go. And I knew my son was on that truck. I knew he was sensible, I knew his crew was good, but yeah, I'm a mum. Mum's worry. 
I fully trusted my husband. He's been a firefighter for most of his life and his father has been very involved in the CFS in the last 50 or so years. On the 3rd of January, Sabrina and her family were preparing to evacuate from their sheep farm. So this time I waited and waited until the boys looked really worried and then I said, shall I go? And they said, I think you should From our house, there were two roads to get to safety. South Coast Road was already on fire, so we couldn't go that way. So we had to go the other way. So they escorted us out to the West End Highway, which was about 1.30 on the 3rd. And we just made that our indecision. And the boys stayed behind to defend the house. Her husband, father and brother-in-law stayed behind. The sky at this point was split almost down the middle with sun on one side and fire and smoke on the other. My daughter said it perfectly. She said, I don't like looking out of my window because my window looks scary. Everything on her side was black and smoky and you could see flames in the distance, probably about 10 kilometres away. And my son just answered, just look out of my window, it's beautiful on my side. And so when we drove out, the fire was behind us, so all we could see was blue sky. At the wildlife park, animals were being brought in by fire crews and locals. The koalas on Kangaroo Island are really special. They are one of the last disease-free populations around Australia. So, yeah, their genetics are very, very important to pretty much saving their species. That's Dana Mitchell. She and her husband Sam own the park. They have an 18-month-old son, Connor. Uh, The 1st of January was when we first started getting koalas coming in um, from the fire grounds. So, yeah, I think we had the first kind of 7 to 14 on the 1st of January and then they just started coming in every day after that. There was a lot of crews coming from all around Australia just to go out rescuing. There's been locals out on grounds every day that have brought us over 100 koalas. And then, yeah, just groups from around Australia that have come over and rescue what they can. Back in the beginning when they were coming in, they were in pretty horrific condition. The burns were really bad. Um, There was some coming in with bones exposed and no skin or muscle or anything left. I don't think anyone was prepared for how horrific it was going to be. Definitely is um, not anything that's going to leave anyone's minds anytime soon. It was, yeah, really, really heartbreaking to see. So many injured koalas were arriving that they ran out of enclosures. In one day, 68 koalas were admitted. So Sam and Dana made space in their own home to look after them. We had all the little ones, all the joeys. Most we had in there at one time was about 35 of them. We started off just cable tying together whatever we had here. They were in the middle of fires, so there was nothing open to be able to get supplies and all that kind of thing. So we just worked with what we had and went from there to just keep building until we had enough room for everyone. When you get them from the wild, obviously it's a wild animal. They're also injured, so they're in a lot of pain and they're just trying to fight. Once they start getting their pain relief and their treatment, and they can't, I think they just kind of understand that we're here trying to help them, we're trying to make them feel better, and pain relief goes a long way to doing that. Joeys were also brought in for recovery. Some were so young, they were still in the phase of holding on to mum. So they're used to cuddling something. So all being in the enclosure, they actually gave them each other a lot of comfort as well. So they just saw each other as mum and, yeah, we just had big balls of little joeys cuddling each other. Oh, look at how he goes there. 
Back on the home front, Peter and his boys were defending the family farm. Back in, back in, back in, back in. Shut it, shut it. It was the worst day of my life. Yeah, well, we tried. We saved two years. Unfortunately, the house is alive. Gotta go. We lost our farm on the 3rd of January. That was the day the children and the dogs and me evacuated. You David, is still coming behind us? Still coming, just crossed the bridge. Oh yeah, you just run behind me, going to see your lights now, yep. And uh, up until that night, about 10pm, when my husband returned and told us that he couldn't protect the house and they lost it, and the farm and the stock, yeah, I never, never imagined that. <laughs> I thought the boys had a good chance from the fires that they had been fighting the two weeks prior because, you know, they have been able to protect all other houses. So many got hit at the same time that unfortunately no one came. It was just them. While Peter was out fighting the fires, he'd had something else on his mind. His bees. They use water that they carry into the hives and they fan it so it's an evaporative air conditioning system that keeps their hive regulated. And his heart was breaking because he knew bees followed their instincts in the heat. They always go back to their hive. They stay in their hive. They stay in their hive to keep it cool. So when the fire comes along, the whole hive just burnt and all the bees. It was very traumatic to see the devastation. A couple of our blokes went out after two days. We couldn't go out before that because we were still fighting fires. And it was a horrible job going around taking photos. I didn't go out. I actually went out afterwards. The same morning that fire had tore through their property, Sabrina's husband had picked up 40 hives, ready for honey extraction. They were packed and waiting outside their house. He had them on the back of the truck and the fire went over and burnt the truck completely and there was this big river of honey running from the truck all the way from the house down to the shed and then that got burnt as well. And then it was still obviously smelling good because all the birds that had tried to get away from the fire returned and found the honey on the track. They tried to get in it to find some sort of food but unfortunately they all got stuck in the honey in the end. I didn't go to the farm for the first few days because my husband asked me not to. He didn't think I would be mentally strong enough at that stage to see the devastation, and I'm glad I didn't. He had a lot of nightmares after and what he had seen and what they had to do, you know, bury the stock and remove a lot of the stock as well. That was tough, even for the boys that have seen a lot. 
We originally thought it was just, you know, one big fire that was just moving along slowly. And then when we were talking to all our friends and family and neighbours, we found out that it was sort of spreading a lot faster than expected and that it was um, spreading like little fingers along the map, reaching up, you know, first southeasterly, and then it was spreading up north. And so it, it took half of the island in about six hours and it travelled distances of about 70 kilometres. So friends of ours that lived 60 kilometres away from us lost their house only two hours after us. So there is nothing normal about that fire and I think we realise our world's changed. And as a community, we desperately need to talk about that going forward. Otherwise, we go forward without building an extra level of resilience. The fires moved across the island to the east, painting the bushland red, then black, and stopping just four kilometres from the airport. The end date was pretty good when they finally called it contained. It was, was a good day. They weren't really under control until we had a rain about the 16th of January. On the 31st of January, the heavens opened. Their whole community was grey. Our trees were grey, our cars were grey, our shops were... Even the oval was grey. And that 50 mile around, was all of a sudden there was this brightness. It was like the colour returned to our life. It was a great way to lift your spirits, you know, was the clincher, absolute clincher. Knowing that it would start the germination again, it would start the recovery in their native edge, it would clean off the their whole remnants of the fire from your houses, your cars, your community, everything you were looking at. You can now drive across entire sections of Kangaroo Island without seeing burnt land. But the scars are still there. It's brought our community closer together, especially the people that have been most affected, directly affected. But it's not just the people who had their places burnt that are affected. It's every business on Kangaroo It's every person on Kangaroo Even the elderly people in the hospital feel the pain that we're going through when they see the news, when they see, talk to their friends or family. So... The whole community is affected. As you can probably tell when I'm talking about it, it's still really raw, even it's been two and a half months and I still sort of get really teary when we talk about it and I try to talk about it regularly with family to let it all out. It does build up still. I wish it wouldn't have happened to all of my friends, but in saying that I'm also very glad we're all in it together because it has made it easy for all of us. I think if we were the only house that would have burnt down, I think it would have been harder for us to mentally cope with it. My husband still receives phone calls regularly, so he has someone to talk to at least once a fortnight. And I um, go and see someone in town. I always just see the same lady and you just it's good. It's a sort of a mixture of talking to friends and talking to family, talking to other affected, which is mostly friends anyway, and then talking to a professional just to see if you're really down, if that's, you know, normal. And you can see the trauma that's still there. Some of them handle it a bit better than others. Some of them, I think the long-term effects will be extraordinary and mightn't have even hit them just yet. But I think we're all aware as a community the health and well-being of each other. So 
while I think people in the burnt-out ground have reached a point where they want to stop being treated like a victim, they want to just have a normal conversation, you know, how's the weather, rather than that victim conversation, I think there's still a great need to watch and assist for a long, long while. I mean, farmers are incredibly resilient because not only do they deal with things like this, but they also deal with droughts and, you know, having to shoot their stock when there's no water or their crops fail. And it wasn't just the humans who were emotionally and physically exhausted. The wildlife felt it too. They're down and out, they're stressed, they're depressed, they've just kind of sit there and as they go through treatment and get towards the end of it, you do see them, they start perking up, they start taking their bottles and all the adults start climbing perches and eating and yeah, it's definitely very lifting when you see them getting to the other side of it and starting to be koalas again. We probably lost 20 tonne of honey that day in the hives that were burnt. 45% of Peter's hives were gone, but others on the island had lost around 60% of their hives. There's mixed emotions. When you go to a site and you see 20 or 30 of your hives all burnt and there's one left, and you look at it and you think, how did that one survive? Some of the sites where we had hives, every hive burnt. Others, it was random, but all of them were so heat-affected that often the queen becomes infertile. And we're still finding hives where the queens stop laying and the population, because the workers only live for a, a short time, the population's diminished to such a, an extent that the hive's not viable anymore. If the bees don't have a lot of food coming in, then they do lose their energy. Once they've eaten the stores out of their hive, and if we're not putting them on areas where there's more pollen and, and uh, nectar coming in, then we have to feed them. And we're feeding a lot of hives at present. And we feed them sugar syrup and a pollen substitute or a protein supplement. Peter thinks it'll take five to seven years for the hives to recover from the fire's impact. And we won't be building up our numbers of hives in that time. We'll be looking after what we've got. Already, if you go into these areas, there are lots of new plants lots of shooting plants, new shoots on uh, trees, because that's how they uh, survive. There is lots of animals out there still. The animals and birds have a great ability to survive in these conditions. Um, So we need to celebrate that. We need to celebrate the new growth. The other thing that gives me hope is my son and daughter-in-law lost their whole farm. They have moved from the western end of the island to Kingscote and now my daughter-in-law is working in our business. And we, we have succession in our business now, whereas we were talking about it and it was going to be about three to five years. Now it's happened. So great things come out of bad things sometimes. Most people that know me know that wildlife is my world. And so to hear farmer friends that have lost their homes, all of their stock, all of their fencing, tell me that they've seen five kangaroos in the bush and they're really healthy looking, gives me hope because they're looking at that as a positive thing and they know that that will make me smile. And I've got a little koala that 
came to me from the fires and she's doing really well and all of her burns are healed and she's very spunky and bitey and which is good because that means she'll be tough when she goes for a release and yeah so things like that give me hope. You've been listening to From the Embers. This series has been brought to you by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia and is supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas and the Paul Ramsey Foundation. Our guests were Kate Wells, Sabrina Davis, Peter Davis, Jane Bates and Dana Mitchell. Special thanks to Sarah Stronglaw, the Davis family, Pat Crother, Graham Waters, Brooke and Reese, Michael Pengelly, and Sean Wheatra. Also thanks to the Kangaroo Island Wildlife Park and Five Kicks FM community radio station. The producer was Lisa Burns. Engineering by Tegan Nichols. Script consultation from Zoe Ferguson. The theme composer was Oliver Beard. The production management team was Vicky Rouse and Abe Killian. And the executive producer was Sarah Mashman. This podcast was made on lands of significance to the Naranjeri, Ramanjeri, Ghana and Naranga peoples and the land of the Muinina people from country around Nipaluna. These lands were never ceded. Although we're all in lockdown, I don't want us to forget the bushfire-affected communities. As we heard last week, they're going to take a long time to really recover. But the Bega Valley Community Disaster Relief Fund is one that I have heard of, and there may be one also for Kangaroo Island if you look it up. I'd just like to report a little story. Bega Valley Shire Mayor Sharon Tapscott said that the city of Ley in Papua New Guinea had recently given them $61,000. Children went around the streets in Ley with wheelbarrows asking for donations and people were very touched. People who live up there said it was very touching to see people who earn very little money putting money into this wheelbarrow that went, wheelbarrows that went around and they've sent it all to Bega Valley for the fire relief. And that money will be spent on uh, new trucks to fight the fires and relief for the families there. So please don't forget those people as we're in lockdown if you can spare money for the fire relief victims and we're heading into another fire season. The one I know about is Bega Valley Community Disaster Relief Fund but there there may be other community ones near you that you'd like to contribute to. G'day you mob, Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe and of course, keep listening to 3CR community radio to keep connected to the community we'll get through this and hope to see you real soon bye 
The next item takes us to the Climate Minister's Summit conducted by the Smart Energy Council. To give some context to this, I'd like to quote Joel Gurgis. Dr Gurgis is a climate scientist and she wrote in an article in the monthly of the emotional impact of seeing certain tipping points crossed. The Great Barrier Reef is one close to us. And she quotes a scientist there, Terry Hughes, who said the ecological collapse he saw when he dived down to look at the reef was like something that an art lover might see, wandering through the Louvre as it burns to the ground. And Joel Gurgis asks, is this the end of fossil fuels or is this the end of life as we know it? That's the fork in the road, listeners. And in this context, I bring you some excerpts from the Smart Energy Council Summit of the 5th of August. We hear energy ministers from South Australia, where they have large amounts of renewable energy, but trouble fitting it all into the grid. From Western Australia, where they have an independent grid and are building manufacturing capacity for batteries rather than just exporting the lithium they mine. Also, we hear from uh, ACT, where Shane Rattenbury also has a high level of renewable energy, but he worries that the federal government will lock in more gas. In the chat box of over 1,000 participants at this summit, which I saw on Zoom, we saw all these people reaching out to the state ministers in a very democratic way. I must say it's something new for me to see that. A few voices echoed what the climate scientists say. Christine Milne, for example, said, you can't separate a discussion of energy from climate change. The world is facing a climate emergency. There is no carbon budget for gas. When Western Australian energy minister said they wanted to supply Japan with blue hydrogen that it demands, blue hydrogen is made from gas, you'll remember, and it has a climate impact, Tim Buckley from IEFA exploded. He said, blue hydrogen, it's pure fossil fuel spin. And someone else called it black hydrogen. So listeners, even though I felt I was drowning, not waving, this frank meeting where the community of 1,000 people in industry and climate action could get in contact with government ministers was something new. Whether it leads to the sort of action we need to prevent the tipping points we're breaching now, I don't know. But I hope it shows you what are the obstacles. My name is John Grimes. I'm the Chief Executive of the Smart Energy Council. We'd like to welcome you today to a really special session that we're holding, uh, a National Energy Minister's Summit. The Energy Minister for South Australia is Dan Van Holst Pelican. Listeners, you might remember when I went up to Port Augusta a few years ago and his energetic support for renewable energy is still alive. But things that we're doing in South Australia, um, particularly to develop further renewable energy and support our economy. Our home battery scheme, um, which now has close to 13,000 uh, homes signed up for it, we've got uh, approximately 150 full-time jobs over the next six months purely connected to the installation of uh, the, the homes that, that haven't already got their, their batteries and or solar installed at the moment. We're very focused on our grid-scale storage scheme. Um, you know, we, we've uh, 50% increased the capacity of the Hornsdale battery, for example. We have four grid-scale batteries in South Australia. Uh, we have more money to go to other grid-scale storage solutions, and I'm, I'm hoping to 
make an announcement on that fairly soon. But they will not only uh, improve the way we harness renewable energy in South Australia, but they will create jobs primarily in the early construction phases, but but well into the future as well. So so trying to do everything that we can to to, to harness um, the opportunities that exist in renewable energy are very important. And and John, it's not. It's not just about generation anymore. I think all of the states are very comfortable that in Australia, uh, we can create renewable energy very, very well. We have that capacity. It doesn't need uh, you know, taxpayer-funded subsidisation any longer. Whether it's rooftop solar, whether it's a large wind farm or solar farm, we're there already. It's not new technology. It's not emerging any longer. We have about a third, a bit over a third of all houses in South Australia have rooftop solar now. We can manage the large, you know, 200 kilowatt and above type facilities, uh, but we can't manage the smaller ones yet. So we need to get on top of that. In South Australia, uh, we have a, a looming net negative demand at certain times of the year, certain times of the day um, that must be addressed. And we are having to necessarily get on the front foot with regard to regulation in South Australia ahead of national regulations. Um, if the grid reaches net negative demand, which uh, under current operation is forecast in South Australia only a few years away, that's not a political issue, that's not a market issue, it's not an environmental issue, it's actually a physics and engineering issue. The, 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 the grid, I mean, will blow up is not the right term, but it just, it will not work. So. We're trying to do a lot of things rather than put a moratorium on, on new rooftop solar. We do not want to do that. So we will have to curtail feeding to the grid at certain times. I, I anticipate it will be a few times a year for a few hours at a time. Um, and, and, you know, nobody wants to be doing that. I don't believe there's going to be significant financial impact on, on homes. But it is necessary to do that because if we don't do that, we will risk that net negative demand. And the only other way to avoid that at the moment would be to uh, put, a, put a stop on new solar installations. Now, that's what we need to do at the moment. I accept that that's causing uh, concern, frustration for installers, people who have equipment and want to continue their business installing the way they have. It's unavoidable. Doing nothing is not an option in this area. But on the bright side, while we're under pressure to... to take some steps very quickly. There are some other things that we're doing which will address this into the longer term. Interconnection, um, electric vehicle harnessing, hydrogen, demand management, storage. I mean, one of the best ways for a household to not be curtailed with their feed-in would be to have a battery and put their surplus electricity in their own battery instead and then use that electricity in the evening rather than out of a grid. So there's a lot of things that we're working on uh, which will address this issue, but we have found ourselves uh, under great time pressure. That's excellent. Thank you very much, um, Dan. Really appreciate that. I'd like to make a comment before I pass to Wayne. The observation that I make is, you know, I've watched over the last decade as the federal government has really um, resisted any plan to do a planned transition of the energy sector. And that's been for what former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull calls, uh, not, not about engineering and economics, but about ideology and idiocy. 
And so you can hold back the facts for so long, but the pressure builds. And it just so happens that the fault line runs directly underneath South Australia. You know, that, that you, you are kind of the, the first point of really where we see those shifts that, are, that, that may occur. Even prime ministers that got a bit close to this issue basically lost their job, right? So, so the price has to be paid. I hope I don't lose my job. Uh, we, we are not uh, philosophically uh, or, or ideologically constrained in our government in South Australia. We are, we are constrained by a, a firm conviction that we must move forward with regard to harnessing renewable energy and it must be in a practical way that works for, for everybody who participates in the market, you know, right through from suppliers all the way through to large and small consumers. Um, we're not locked into ideology. We're locked into continuing down a path, but making sure it's a, it's, it's a practical way to do it. We are under pressure, as you said, and, and we're doing the things we're doing for many reasons, including not wanting a complete lockdown in the solar industry. We, we have no intention of that happening, but we will have to uh, impose some curtailment, uh, you know, as I said, a few times a year for a few hours at a time, so that we don't have to lock down the solar industry. And I know that uh, certainly solar retailers, battery storage retailers and installers in South Australia have spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not much more than that, um, participating in the home battery scheme, uh, training people and so forth. There's a lot of good faith in the industry, but we're, re we're really deeply concerned that jobs will be lost at the worst possible time. How can we work together to resolve these issues? Well, very happy to work together. I mean, I, I, and I accept the concerns of the, the solar installers uh, and, and that, that, that industry group broadly, but I, I can't say any more plainly, accepting some curtailment, which will overwhelmingly be applied to new installations from now on, um, is, is, is a far, far smaller penalty than not being able to do any new installations from now on. And the very, very clear advice that we've got from AEMO and, and South Australian Power Networks, which is our statewide distributor um, company, is that if we do nothing, that's where we're heading. Um, so it's, it's, it's the far, far lesser of two evils, but I understand it's not ideal. It would also be, um, it would be perhaps nearly impossible to, to, for businesses to continue doing what they're doing if yeah. we were to have some of the negative outcomes of doing nothing. So, you know, very aware of those concerns and don't discount. John, if I might, can I just move on to one other question? Renewable hydrogen, there's a lot of excitement about that. Can you just tell us a little bit about that in South Australia? Do you think that's a realistic option? Is it an option to build an export industry for renewable hydrogen in South Australia? Yeah, that's a big question for a very, very quick answer, Wayne. I'll do, I'll do my best. Yes, it is. I mean, we are blessed probably more than any other state with uh, wind and sun and land and access to the coast that isn't already being used for something else. It's not that other states don't have, uh, you know, their own opportunities, they do, but, but we, we really are blessed in an enormous amount of space uh, that's not densely populated, so it can be export locations. Um, I have a very strong view that, that, yes, that opportunity is there for us, but one of the ways to get it going, we must start to lift um, local domestic consumption of hydrogen. We have a project which I'm sure you're aware of in Mitchell Park, a suburb of Adelaide, in partnership with AGIG. Uh, they're going to generate electricity. They have the, the, the largest electrolyzer in Australia at this point in time, 1.25 megawatts on site uh, at the Tonsley Innovation Precinct. They use solar to, 
to create hydrogen and put it into our reticulation network to 700 homes. We need to start getting uh, some domestic demand going because hydrogen production is so scalable. So we can, we can produce a bit of hydrogen for a bit of demand, a bit more demand, a bit more hydrogen, and that will be the way for us to lift up to genuinely high volume green hydrogen export opportunity. You know, it's, it's 10 to 20 years away, but we're starting as we speak uh, on the ground to develop that opportunity. Before I go ahead and introduce the, the next minister, maybe just something I can put on, on notice for the other ministers in the call today. I think uh, um, Minister Dan really raised something important, and that is in Australia, we can build renewables really quickly. We can roll them out at pace, but we can build transmission lines really slowly. And the, 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 the very complex, lengthy process actually is, is actually a, a handbrake to the whole transition and is going to actually cost us you know, reliability, it's going to cost us affordability, it's going to cost us in terms of environmental outcomes. What can you as, as, as energy ministers do to streamline and speed up that process? You know, that really is a critical question. So I kind of put that on, on the record, Wayne, and just on notice. Now, Wayne Smith asks the West Australian Energy Minister about manufacturing big batteries to store renewable energy. The minister's name is Bill Johnson. Well, look, that's a Dorothy Dixon, today the government announced that uh, we're making available a $13.2 million incentive package for, to support uh, a cathode-active material manufacturing facility. There are six steps between uh, minerals in the ground and a battery. At the moment, Western Australia uh, is producing the first three steps in that manufacturing process. We're now, uh, today, is uh, supporting a incentive package to get a global scale cathode active manufacturing facility to be built here in Western Australia. The, through the Future Battery Industry Cooperative Research Centre, we've already funded a pilot plant to be built at uh, Curtin University. And now we're offering a, a incentive package to get a global investor to uh, build a cathode active material manufacturing facility here in Western Australia. Western Australia is the, the pivot point for the global uh, supply of battery materials and we're very keen to make sure that we can continue to move down that uh, manufacturing pathway. John Grimes now talks to the ACT Energy Minister about the fears that many of us have that federal government will lead the COVID, COVID reconstruction with gas. Shane Rattenbury. Our work at the moment is really to advocate for rebuilding better, for investing in in things that are going to create you know economic activity, but also deliver an economic you know dividend in terms of lower power prices and lower emissions over the long term. Um, you know, if if I'm you know I, I've um, you know reading the tea leaves, uh, you know I, I'm a little bit concerned that you know that, that the federal government might be on a path to really provide substantial support to the gas industry, the natural mm. gas industry, as opposed to the renewables industry. What do you think is the is the most useful thing we as advocates and the industry can do to promote our case before any any final decisions are made? It does seem from the work that's coming through that there is a window for about the next eight years or so where gas has the potential to be very profitable. And we're very concerned by that. And I think the way the federal government is constructing its its post-COVID reconstruction committee and the agenda around that, it does seem that gas is going to get a real push. For me, 
the issue is that I think that profitability that's going to be available to the gas sector is going to impact on consumers. And highlighting the analysis of that is probably a place where I think we can crack open the discussion beyond the, the climate discussion. Because I think we're in an era where everybody knows that gas is just another fossil fuel. And the more gets pumped into the system in the next decade, uh, obviously that's problematic. And the other thing we know is that once people have made the investments, they will fight like hell to protect their investments. And so I think there's a real risk there that that uh, Im embedded investment will become a, another vested interest that will drive policy in this country. You know, they are taking the lead on this. And if you look at the last decade, it's been the states that have shown the leadership in the energy space. And so I think that's one of the challenges or the risks here is to see how the Commonwealth leads it. Our work at the moment is really to advocate for rebuilding better, for investing in, in things that are going to create you know, economic activity, but also deliver an economic you know, dividend in terms of lower power prices and lower emissions over the long term. Reading the tea leaves, uh, you know, I, I'm a little bit concerned that, you know, that, that the federal government might be on a path to really provide substantial support to the gas industry, the natural mm. gas industry, as opposed to the renewables industry. What do you think is the, is the most useful thing we as advocates and the industry can do to promote our case before any, any final decisions are made? It does seem from the work that's coming through that there is a window for about the next eight years or so where gas has the potential to be very profitable. And we're very concerned by that. And I think the way the federal government is constructing its COVID, its post-COVID reconstruction committee and the agenda around that, it does seem that gas is going to get a real push. For me, the issue is that I think that profitability that's going to be available to the gas sector is going to impact on consumers. And highlighting the analysis of that is probably a place where I think we can crack open the discussion beyond the, the climate discussion. Because I think we're in an era where everybody knows that gas is just another fossil fuel. And the more gets pumped into the system in the next decade, uh, obviously that's problematic. And the other thing we know is that once people have made the investments, they will fight like hell to protect their investments. And so I think there's a real risk there that that uh, embedded investment will become a, another vested interest that will drive policy in this country. On the subject of gas, West Australia's Bill Johnson talked about using gas to produce hydrogen. He called it blue hydrogen. I'll make a comment about gas. I mean, obviously, we're not connected to the, uh, the East Coast gas network and we don't want to be. Uh, most gas that's uh, produced in Western Australia is exported. Now, I think people need to understand exactly what that means. That means that the, 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 there's a customer somewhere who wants that gas. Until that demand for methane goes away, then the same amount of gas is going to be produced somewhere in the world. And don't forget that the Paris Accord actually says that the carbon emissions from China and India and other of our uh, partners in Asia is going to increase over time, not reduce, going to increase. That, that's actually in the Paris Accord. And it's very importantly in the Paris Accord because otherwise what we would be saying in the West is that uh, our, our Eastern neighbours, where we've literally pillaged for hundreds of years, aren't entitled to have the same type of lifestyle that we have. So the Paris Accord takes account of that. 
and it says that those countries can... can sorry, sorry, Minister, what, what you're saying is that the people in the developing world can't ha get a, a decent standard of living if they don't have access to no. gas or fossil fuels. No, what I'm saying is that they have to have access... To, they have to be allowed to make a decision for themselves. And it's arrogant and not, not reasonable for people in the West who've used fossil fuels for 200 years to create the societies we have to say that people in another country who are not as rich as us are not allowed to make the same decisions. That's arrogance and, and imperialism, quite frankly. So these countries will continue to purchase power, energy, in the way they choose. And, you know, if you take China as the example, it'll take 300 years at their current in engagement with renewable energy for them to stop using coal. 51% of all the coal in the world is used in China. And 90% of that Chinese coal is mined in China. So 45% of global coal, energy coal, comes from China. So when we have discussions about global uh, energy flows, it has to be done from a point of view of emerging countries' rights to make their own decisions. So, we, you know, we have a different energy system to the East Coast. The East Coast gas supply is principally used domestically. In Western Australia, gas supply is almost universally, 85% is exported. So the question is, what do the countries that are buying our gas want to do? Now, in respect to Korea and, and Japan, they have an aggressive policy to move to hydrogen. But at the moment, they, they want to use blue hydrogen, that is, from methane. Uh, you know, will Australia, Western Australia, will respond to that because that's the demand of our customers. And, and, you know, and just, just, have a just like hydrogen plan as well. Energy producers in the Middle East are, are thinking about their future. What does it look like in a, in a carbon-constrained world? Yeah. I think the challenge is incumbent on all of us to say, how do we drive down really aggressively the, the cost of renewable-based hydrogen? Absolutely. Because that, that, that not only helps solve the problem, but actually gives us yeah. an economic future as, as, a, as an energy-exporting... Um, that's system. why in Western Australia we have the globally leading position in hydrogen because... You know, with all due respect to Tasmania, you know, 1.5 gigawatts of energy is enormous for Tasmania, for Australia, but our energy exports far exceed that, and that's why we're talking about 30 gigawatts of renewable hydrogen in Western Australia. So, you know, we're responding to the demands of our customers because that's the only way that we're going to make a living in the future. I think that's definitely a shared goal. This is where the chat went wild calling it black hydrogen and saying fossil fuel industry spin. No time for new fossil fuels. Climate scientist Joel Gurgis said, as the planetary crisis accelerates, we must confront the reality that what we do now will forever alter the course of humanity and all life on Earth. We interrupt this broadcast, listeners, for some breaking news. I received a media alert called the Premature Death of Coal. Tim Buckley from IEFA sends us this message. There have been more signs this week of the premature death of coal. It's happening sooner than we expected. Adani, 
Adani Australia's parent company has confirmed its move away from thermal coal mining. It is no longer a focus for the growth-oriented business. Gautam Adani said earlier in 2020 that low-cost domestic clean solar is far more attractive. Glencore. After reporting a collapse in earnings yesterday, Glencore is temporarily shutting nine Hunter Valley coal mines while the situation with its six Queensland coal mines is unclear. After Unicredit's announcement yesterday, now 49 globally significant financial institutions have announced new or tighter coal exit policies year-to-date in 2020, and nearly 140 have exited coal globally. Thank you to everybody for tonight's show. This has been the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Good night and good luck. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Now action in lockdown. Tomorrow night, Tuesday the 11th of August at 8.30, you can see the first episode in a new ABC series called The Fight for Planet A. It's with Craig Roycastle. So for the next three Tuesdays at 8.30, that will be a very good way for you to learn about uh, how to cut down your emissions and also there's a lot of interactive material and online Zoom Q&As that you can join. You can go to their website and participate in a community forum at Yarra Council on Tuesday night after the show. It's called Q&A. Even more than that, you can take note of Beyond Zero Emissions, Zero Carbon Communities, which will be profiled in the TV show. So step two, go to snapshotclimate.com.au. That's a new thing from BZ. It's linked to BZ. It's called, you can get a snapshot of your municipality. So you just type in your postcode and you find out what emissions your municipality is responsible for. And then step three, you can contact Beyond Zero Emissions to find out how your community can go to zero You don't have to reinvent the wheel. They will help you. So take heart, dear listeners. Contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au so that we don't drown for lack of feedback. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. We know our climate is changing, but when faced with such a big challenge, so many of us think, what can I do about it? Australia, it's time to think about our carbon footprint. This is no longer an argument about science, but a case for saving the planet. Are you with me, guys? In this series, we'll meet those who raised the alarm decades ago. By the early 1980s, I knew. Listen to those who'll inherit this problem. I'm terrified. We will never back down! 
challenge billion dollar businesses to do better. We've got 20 million trees for Chevron. There's 20 million, can you give us a hand with them? And hold our government leaders accountable. Definitely be talking to the Prime Minister about this. Scott, <laughs> Prime Minister! Why is he trying to run away? Who's ready for a climate challenge? Yeah! To find out if together we can make a real difference. And I meet some inspirational Aussies. One of the waste products is ultimately methane. They'll let one rip. Who are working towards solutions for the future of our planet. So join me as we embark on this climate challenge. Fight for Planet A starts Tuesday, August 11.